The Warsaw thing didn't lead anywhere either. That was 1962. I was brand new. I had two very tough years to go through first. Merv Griffin in 1965 began my, my television exposure that had any meaning to it. More, uh, Merv Griffin, 1965, led to about 30 of those appearances in the next two years. Mike Douglas, the same thing. That led to network appearances. Network appearances led to Las Vegas. Right. So this was 65, 66, 67, that the path from my initial important television to Las Vegas took place. Now, but before you got into... Uh your albums as we know you today. Yeah, before the, you, yeah. You got really straight. Before the change. Well, I had a whole 10 years of that because the whole world was straight. Well, I, I was looking down. I had no idea you did this because my memories of you, of course, like a lot of people, are yeah. from, uh, let's say, your hippie days on. Or on. Right. Yeah, that's true. But you were, the Jimmy Dean show, Roger Miller show, you were writing for uh, John Davidson? I wrote, yeah, that was my first significant uh, ne network appearances. I, the whole summer of 1966, I wrote, I was the only writer on the Kraft Summer Music Hall. That was the substitute for Andy Williams, uh, who had a weekly show called the Craft Music Hall. Right. So the summer music hall, John Davidson was the host, and I was the writer and the comedian. You did, but the movies, I didn't know you were in these movies. Six, you get egg roll. Six, you get egg roll. Doris Day and Brian Keith, 1960. That's about as straight as you can get. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Sure. Doris Day and Brian Keith. Yeah. Okay. I can tell you an interesting uh, analysis of that dichotomy okay. uh, that, 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 that I discovered later in, in myself. All my life as a young kid, I'd been a rules breaker, a law breaker. I was out of step with everyone. Yeah. I got kicked out of three schools. I quit high school in ninth grade. I got kicked out of the Air Force, essentially. I got kicked out of the Boy Scouts, summer camp, the choir, and the altar boys. All of those things I was kicked out of. And that's because I didn't fit and didn't want to fit and didn't want to take rules and regulations and ways, conventional ways of doing things. So I was, at heart, an outlaw. Okay. That's chapter one. That's the A-level me. That's the real me. Right. Now, this on the B-level, there's this dream going on. I want to be like Danny Kaye. I want to be a movie actor. I want to be like Red Skelton in the movies. I want to be like Bob Hope in the movies. And so when you pursue that path in the early 50s, mid-50s, late 50s, you pursue that path. That path is a people-pleasing path. Right. It's a straight middle of the road you keep the rules and you present the proper look and face to people. Because what was I going to do? I wasn't going to grow my hair long. Nobody had long hair then, except classical musicians. And so what I did was I played the B game, not knowing any of this. All I did was just act out my life. But underneath, I don't give a shit. And I smoke pot. And the other guy is going to the per and doing the Perry Como special in Hawaii, dressed up as Captain Cook and falling out of a war canoe and doing all this straight shit, which I hated. But I felt it would get me to my movie acting careers. I right. felt these were just dues. And the world was straight, so it didn't matter to me. There were no alternatives. But in the mid-60s, an alternative began to appear and present right. itself, which was in the form of the rock music of the time, which represented the youth culture that was forming. The free speech movement came in the early 60s. The youth culture was gathering, and you had uh, the, the ideas, at least the notions, the formative things of free love, free you know, free thought, uh, fighting the man, uh, or anti-authority, all, the, all these things that I really was were now happening to people who were successful at it. And I, and I just uh, would notice that in my musician friends. There, over my, the period of five years, my musician friends, their hair got longer, their clothes got different, their music changed. And I'm thinking, well, these are friends of mine using their art to express their 
their attitudes and political feelings and points of view, not just to entertain. And I guess that was just being processed in me. And I was 30 in 1967. If that, I think that was the summer of love. It's either that or the next year. <laughs> but I was 30 in 67. And the kids who were doing all this, let's say, were about 20. Right. And their parents were about 40. And I was entertaining their parents in these nightclubs. And these, there was this generation gap. There was this animosity between the parent and the child. As you know, that was a big fight for a while. He's the one kid with long hair in this family. And I'm not, you know, blah, 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 blah. And finally, it's like, it's, like, it's like gays now today. Finally, family said, well, yeah, we have a gay member in our family. You know, they finally accept something. And so at that time, it was still a big fight. And here I was in the middle entertaining the wrong people, feeling like the younger ones entertaining the older ones. And that slowly, without knowing that, I didn't understand, I didn't think of that, it acted on me. And I began to shift because the pot, marijuana and acid, mescaline, are values shifting psychotropic hallucinogens. They're not like cocaine and those other bad things. They, they are, they, they can shift your values. They can give you a new outlook on, oh, look, that's the way it really is. Oh, now I see through that shit. And so it gave me fuel when I finally dropped acid and everything. That even boosted it along a little more, this, this uh, evolution, this change in me that was going on from straight suit and tie, short hair, to the guy that emerged in, in the early 70s. And it did not happen overnight. I didn't go away to the mountaintop like Bobby Darren and come back in fringe leather. I spent two years on daytime television growing my beard, growing my hair, and telling people like Virginia Graham, Steve Allen, and Della Reese why this was happening to me and explaining myself to the public who knew me as a straight comic. Comedy star George Carlin. <laughs> almost got a sprocket in my pocket. That was a quick change. Hi there. <laughs> Little eye shtick for the people at home. The sound might not be working on their sets. I'll show you the one I used to do when I was a kid. I used to do this one on the subway, just keeping one eye closed. I was brought up here in New York, brought up in used to go on the subway to 116th Street and make sure one eye was closed and make sure that everybody could see it because a lot of people don't like to look right at you when they think something's wrong, you know. They, they kind of go, oh, God, look at his eye. In the subway, they look over the newspaper at you, like, oh, look at that, there. So I'd make sure everybody had seen it. I'd read, go see, meet Miss Subways, read everything, and finally, about 86th Street, I'd kind of go down and come up with the other one. <laughs> Very few ever noticed it. I mentioned hair. We moved from my eyes to my hair. I'm aware some stare at my hair. In fact, to be fair, some really despair of my hair. But they're not aware, nor are they debonair. In fact, they're real square. They see hair down to there, say beware, and go off on a tear. I say no fair. <laughs> a head that's bare is really nowhere. So be like a bear. Be fair with your hair. Show it you care. Wear it to there, or to there, or to there if you dare. My wife bought some hair at a fair to use as a spare. Did I care? Au contraire. Spare hair is fair. In fact, hair can be rare. Fred Astaire has no hair, nor does a chair, nor a chocolate eclair. And where is the hair on a pair? Nowhere, mon frere. 
Now that I've shared this affair of the hair, I think I'll repair to my lair and use Nair. Do you care? <laughs> I only mention hair because to some people it's important. It's not important to me. I've only had my extra hair for about a year now. Actually, it's the same hair I always had. It just used to be on the inside, you know? <laughs> Wearing on the outside, that's the only thing different. We also mentioned that you felt as if entertaining the straight segment yeah. or whatnot, yeah. you sort of lost some of your childhood, and this was a chance to live that yeah. childhood you didn't yeah. the 10 years before that. Yeah, I had, you see, because I was such a planner in my adolescence and uh, such an adult kind of thinker, you know, a guy who's here's a guy who's planning his life and his steps and so forth, I, I had a kind of a deferred adolescence. But this is what got you in trouble with Carson. Yeah, for a brief time. By the way, I admire you very much. I think it was the Playboy interview, but when you described the problem you had by showing up with long hair... And yeah, like, and the well, tight tight shirt anymore. was what did it. And then you decided to bust into his dressing room and give him a lecture, which yeah. was a, yeah. a, sh a stupid thing to do. Yeah. I admire the fact that you put that on the table, admitted you did that. Yeah, sure. You know, most people would have said, we never would have known the story, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, While Johnny sure. was in a bad mood. Yeah. You burst in there all coked up and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And he, you must have really regretted that for a while. Because uh, he I was polite about it, wasn't he? Uh, he was He was polite, but I knew he was a smart dude and understood things like that. I sensed he had, you know, even though he was kind of from a, a, a repressive kind of a Midwestern background and right. so forth, I still knew that he was a, a broad thinker and a smart guy. So I just trusted that. And for a while, I couldn't go there because they didn't want to take a risk of me being on the air. But after a while, they they started having me host the show. I hosted that show about 30 times. You were on, it what, 160 times or something? I did about 140. If you count the Lenos since then, about 140 of them. Have you ever said, has anyone ever gotten together a, a collection of video of your physical changes over the years? I have or? a uh -huh. reel of uh, my Carsons, which probably have 50 appearances on them, and that, that would be two of them it would show the hair the beard the colors changing the bit you know a little shorter a little longer a little shorter a little longer strange clothes for a while we were talking about richard Pryor when the tape wasn't running and uh, uh you and him used to actually you shared a club but you used to uh, sort of do cross well, crap on stage in that period between that mort saw 1962 appearance and the Merv Griffin, that was me trying to remember, because I want to say more every time. The Merv Griffin in 65 was three years, obviously. And in that time, I went to a club called the Cafe or Go-Go on Bleecker Street in New York, roughly across the street from the Bitter End, which was more famous. Downstairs club, everything from, from the Fugs to the Blues Magoo to um, uh, uh, Astrid Gilberto, Stan Getz, Bill Evans, all sorts of eclectic uh, stuff, but it was a, basically a coffee house with a liquor license. So it had that it had that post-beatnik, early hippie ethos of permissiveness. And, uh, and I worked there on and off. The great thing about it, this was my gymnasium. This was my laboratory. This is the place I needed. I took a stand and stayed in New York for low pay. Sometimes you'd get five bucks there at night for, for just doing one set. Sometimes you'd get only a hamburger. Sometimes you'd get 20 bucks if it was a weekend. Sometimes you'd be a weekend w with, like, Bill Evans, and you'd open for him, and you'd get 
$200 for three nights. So so it varied, and you could come in for one night, two nights, you could come down, you don't show up, nobody cares. You could go in there for a week at a time, and, and it became my place to learn my craft. Richard was doing the same thing there. Richard was also in his straight phase, obviously, his Rumpelstiltskin phase. Yeah. I was in my army sergeant, my Indian sergeant. Everybody was always working. Comedians were always working on that five-minute piece I can use to get on The Tonight Show or Merv Griffin. Right. And because uh, those places could lead you somewhere, obviously. And as it happened, Richard and I, a few nights, went on stage together. I don't remember much about that stuff. We smoked a lot of pot in the back. <laughs> all right, all the tall guys over by the trees. <laughs> Fat guys down behind the rocks. <laughs> you with the beads, out of line, come on. <laughs> Boy, there's one in every village. All right, now go off the horse play. Come on, now go off the horse play. You guys over there playing with the horse, will you knock it off? <laughs> He's all been given a piece of birch bark and a feather dipped in eagle's blood. We want you to write on the birch bark with the feather in the upper right-hand corner. That's the upper right-hand corner. That's your arrow hand. You write your name, last name first, first name last. Your name is Running Bear, you write Bear, Running. <laughs> You got a middle initial, please include that, such as Wolf, Howling W. <laughs> a lot of you guys have been asking me about promotion. You'd like to make Brave second class. Get another scar up on your arm. Well, I'm happy to say the results of your early tests have come true. You're doing beautifully. Burning settlers' homes, everybody passed. Imitating a coyote, everybody passed. Sneaking quietly through the woods, everybody passed except Limping Ox. <laughs> However, Limping Ox is being fitted with a pair of corrective moccasins. <laughs> and uh, he'll be up and dancing in no time at all. Now, there are two other areas on which you will be tested. Running down the hill yelling like a nut. <laughs> and leaping off the cliff, which is considered to be the tougher of the two. A lot of fellas like to save leaping off the cliff for last. <laughs> Couple of announcements for you here. The fertility rights have been called off due to the recent cold wave. Ah. There'll be a rain dance Friday night, weather permitting. Got a great band, Leaping Lizard and the All-Stars. They'll be playing all your favorite tunes, Pass That Peace, Pipe Indian, Love Call, Sweet Sue, all them tunes you've come to know and love through these many moons. <laughs> okay, uh, one other thing. There's another item that goes on your clothing list, and that is your loin cloth. Now, that goes down on your list as one each cloth loin type. That there is your loin cloth. This will want to get to know and love your loin cloth. Someday it may save your life. <laughs> There'll be a massacre tonight at nine o'clock. <laughs> we'll meet down by the bonfire, dance around a little and move out. <laughs> This'll be the fourth straight night we've attacked the fort. However, tonight it will not be as easy. Tonight there will be soldiers in the fort. <laughs> Happy to say I'll be leading the massacre. I'll be running down front. You'll see me. I'm the one that's on fire. <laughs> And the uh, uniform of the day, it's a formal massacre. 
You want your Class A summer loin cloth? Two green stripes over the eye, no feather. Arms are blue, legs are red, chest is optional. <laughs> you might throw a little yellow on the bellies. No, you can't put any purple on your eyelids. Ain't you the guy with the beads? Get out of line, would you please, pal? Thank you. Here's another interest, one of those interesting life things. At one time back there, unknown, I'm saying the three of us are unknown personalities. Uh, I, Richard Pryor, and Jose Feliciano sat, would sit around and shoot the shit. We all worked in this club all the time. And we would smoke pot. And there's three of us there. And there was many nights when there were those three of us there, maybe 15, 20 nights out of the whole two years. And I can remember two or three years after that, looking out my window in Las Vegas, at my name on one sign, Richard Pryor on another one, and Jose Feliciano on another one. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't closing acts, but we were opening acts. And we were all in the Vegas marquees, and we had been back there and backstage in that cafe of go-go. <laughs> oh, I, I got to the Merv Griffin show, oh, yeah. and, and here's what happened. Richard had his interview with the people at the Merv Griffin show, because they'd come in and seen him. Now he gets an interview with the talent coordinator. And he had his interview with the Merv Griffin people before they came in to see me. Now they came in to see me, he did his show, his first Merv Griffin show, and I did my interview. So I was like always one step behind Richard in that, in that little uh, progression from the clubs to, the, to the being regularly on TV. Right. And then finally, I got my Merv Griffin show. And uh, each of us went from there, you know, and, and there was still a lot of years of scuffling before good shit happened. But Richard and I both went through that, you know, he ran naked through the casino, they say, <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't quite do that, but um, it was just, I did it symbolically. You were the first host yeah. on Saturday Night Live, yeah. and I was sitting in my bedroom uh -huh. in Philadelphia, and I saw that live. That program, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was exciting because the concept, the fact it was live. Yeah. But when I read accounts that you've given since then, yes, you were like basically just wired and running around. Yes. And, uh, yes. Uh, don't remember much about it. Somebody wanted me to wear a suit, and I didn't want to wear a suit, so I said, "Okay, I'll wear a suit, but underneath it, I'm going to have on a, one of those Wallace Beery undershirts. Just that. That was my. I held out for that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was full of cocaine that week. I didn't want to do sketches. I knew I wasn't very good at them. And I talked Lorne Michaels out of the sketches. I said, just let me do little short monologues all through the show. You know, let me do about four or five little two-minute things. Mm -hmm. So he let me do that. And uh, I don't remember a whole lot. One, one account of it all says they had to break down my hotel door one day to get me to rehearsal. I don't doubt that. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm drinking Diet Coke, so I'm belching a lot. It's class all the way. Yeah. Along comes your uh, AM and F, FM and AM, which yes. is your first uh, uh, Grammy nomination. You yeah. won for that, right? Yeah, yeah, that one won. Now, what do you think of the Grammys? How, what do you think of awards in general? Well, they're okay. They're sort of fun. I mean, it's better to win one than not. I mean, it's, if, if you've made 25 albums and you've got four Grammys, that feels good. 
if you got 25 albums and you got no Grammys, it probably feels okay. <laughs> but I don't know how that feels. I only know how it feels to have four. Well, you know, nowadays, uh, the things have sort of changed. Uh, co comedians don't really sell albums anymore. No, and there were th that has always been very cyclical without it being a predictable cycle. Uh, there was a period in the 50s when, uh, you know, it exploded right. with uh, Bob Newhart, Bob Newhart and Mort Saul, Shelley Berman, Lenny Bruce, Nichols and May, uh, and um, Woody Woodbury. Uh, oh, my God, from oh, yeah. Miami. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah we were, we, I lived in Miami for 21 years yeah, before yeah. I came to Washington, yeah. and he was a fixture there. Yeah. One time Burns and I were out on 8 Mile Road at, uh, in Detroit playing some dump, and he was next door at Robert's Keyboard Lounge. We went to see him there. But yeah, comedy albums were really huge at one time, and they became a phenomenon, and then they sort of disappeared, and then they dribbled along for a while, and then they got hot again right. in those 70s there. And then, uh, no, it's uh, the, whole com the whole comedy thing changed with that, that uh, boom. We call it the comedy boom, the clubs, comedy club boom, yeah. which was just a business move. You know, how can we... How can we open a cheap storefront with oh, yeah. bad furniture, bad sound, not pay the comedians, and make money selling whiskey? Well, many many uh, a comedy club managers confessed to me, "Hey, if this didn't work, we'd have strippers. Who cares? Yeah. You know, yeah. fill it's the seats." It's a sports bar there. <laughs> yeah, right. They always get a pub. Now it's a pub. A pub. Yeah. Lots of TVs. Yeah. Well, speaking of albums, it was a 1973 WBAI aired Occupation Fool. Right. I love words. I thank you for hearing my words. I want to tell you something about words that I, uh, I think is important. I love, as I say, they're my uh, work, they're my play, they're my passion. Words are all we have, really. Uh, we have thoughts, but thoughts are fluid, you know. And then we assign a word to a thought. And we're stuck with that word for that thought. So be careful with words. I like to think, yeah, the same words, you know, that hurt can heal. It's a, it's a matter of how you pick them. There are some people that aren't into all the words. There are some people that would have you not use certain words. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven. Bad words. That's what they told us they were, remember? That's a bad word. No bad words, bad thoughts, bad intentions, and words. You know the seven, don't you, that you can't say on television? Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, huh? Those are the heavy seven. Those are the ones that'll infect your soul, curve your spine, and keep the country from winning the war. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Wow. And tits doesn't even belong on the list, you know? Yeah. It's such a friendly-sounding word. Sounds like a nickname, right? Hey, tits, come here, man. Hey, tits. Hey. Hey, tits, me toots. Toots, tits. Tits, tits, man. 
Sounds like a snack, doesn't it, huh? Yes, yes I know, it is, right, a snack. But I don't mean your sexist snack. I mean new Nabisco tits. <laughs> and new cheese tits. And corn tits and pizza tits and sesame tits, onion tits, tater tits. <laughs> yeah. Bet you can't eat just one. <laughs> That's true, I usually switch off. <laughs> but I mean, that word does not belong on the list. Actually, none of the words belong on the list, but you can understand why some of them are there. I mean, I'm not completely insensitive to people's feelings. You know, I can dig why some of those words got on the list. Like cocksucker and motherfucker, those are... <laughs> Those are heavyweight words, you know. Oh, there's a lot going on there, man. Besides the literal translation and, and the emotional feeling, I mean, they're just busy words. There's a lot of syllables to contend with. And, and those K's, those are aggressive sounds. They jump out at you, man. Cocksucker, motherfucker, cocksucker, like an assault on you, you know? So I can dig that. Now, we mentioned shit earlier, of course, and uh, two of the other four-letter Anglo-Saxon words are piss and cunt, which go together, of course, but forget that. So, little accidental humor I throw there. Piss and cunt. The reason that piss and cunt are on the list is that a long time ago, certain ladies said, those are the two I'm not going to say. I don't mind fucking shit, but P and C are out. P and C are out. Which led to such stupid sentences as, okay, you fuckers, I'm going to tinkle now. <laughs> and of course, the word fuck. The word fuck, I don't really, well, here's some more accidental humor. I don't really want to get into that now. <sighs> because I think it takes too long. <sighs> but I do mean that. I mean, I think the word fuck is a very important word. It's the beginning of life, and yet it's a word we use to hurt one another quite often. And uh, people much wiser than I have said, I'd rather have my son watch a film with two people making love than two people trying to kill one another. And I, of course, can agree. It's a great sentiment. I wish I knew who said it first, and I, I agree with that. But I'd like to take it a step further. I'd like to substitute the word fuck for the word kill in all those movie cliches we grew up with, right? Okay, Sheriff, we're gonna fuck you now. <laughs> but we're gonna fuck you slow. So maybe next year I'll have a whole fucking rap on that word. I hope so. Uh, there are two-way words. Those are the seven you can never say on television. Under any circumstances, you just cannot say them ever, 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 not even clinically. You cannot weave them in on the panel with Doc and Ed and Johnny. I mean, it's just impossible. Forget those seven. They're out. But there are some two-way words, those double-meaning words. Remember the ones you giggled at in sixth grade? And the cock crowed three times. Hey, the cock crowed three times. Hey, hey it's in the Bible. Hey. 
There are some two-way words, like it's okay for Kurt Gowdy to say, Roberto Clemente has two balls on him. <laughs> but he can't say, I think he hurt his balls on that play, Tony, don't you? He's holding them. He must have hurt them, by God. And the other two-way word that goes with that one is prick. It's okay if it happens to your finger. Yes, you can prick your finger, but don't finger your prick. No, no. I find it fascinating that when that was going on, they're the ones that were on the defensive. They're the ones that supposedly did something wrong, according yeah. to the government. And yet everyone was saying, oh, that Carlin. He didn't do anything. No. Well, but... He just had an album out that somebody played on the radio. Yeah. It was as if it was as if you were on the radio saying that on purpose. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, I was I was an onlooker to that whole event, the five year event from the original complaint to the Supreme Court decision in '78, and uh, it it probably um, it probably gave me an identity that was uh, an additional boost to what I was earning on my own, you know, as a comic who was turning out some fairly good comedy albums. You know, there were four gold ones in a row, and then there were um, two more Little David albums that weren't gold, but they were real close to tin or pewter, <laughs> I think. And uh, But they were, they, were, they were good. But I, I, that's when I get into my drift uh, creatively. I had run concert. I'd sort of run out of who, who I was. Um, the uh, d disco was in full swing in, in 76. My um, autobiographical period was over. You know, the class clown and the occupation fool, the neighborhood stuff, the school stuff, the religion stuff, that was over. Uh, the um, the anti-authoritary thing, ha its first phase of that in me had sort of passed, and I was getting a little observational. I was starting to do those things. Did you ever notice? you ever right. look between your toes? you ever see? you ever notice sometimes if you stand over here and you look like that? Place for my stuff. Yes, right. doing that kind of thing. And then... Uh, and then what happened was I started to drift a little like that. I mean, I didn't know that. You don't know these things until you look back at them. Right. Here came cable television. What happened was I had a mass audience in records. I could do 45 minutes straight, no commercials, no censorship. And that was, that was great. That was what propelled me, those, those four um, gold records. Right. Now, that, that thing kind of plays out. It plays out. I play out. And here comes cable, where I can do essentially the same thing, but they take pictures of it, too. Here are some more men who ought to be strapped to a gurney and castrated with fishing knives. <laughs> White guys who shave their heads completely bald. You know? They're so ashamed they lost 11 hairs, they're gonna try to turn it into some kind of a masculine statement. I say, hey, you goofy-looking, baldy-headed fuck. Looks good on black guys. On you, it's ugly, repulsive, and disgusting. You want to be bald? Do what I did. Wait a while. Yeah. Meantime, there's no excuse for running around looking like a freshly circumcised dick. what kept me in front of the public, because no one had cable. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, the first three or four of them, nobody saw, really. Um, Johnny Carson and hosting and being a guest. I just kept doing those. I just kept doing those. I just kept doing those. And, I, and that kept me on the road. You had, you've had two heart attacks. 
No, I've had three heart attacks. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I want to leave one out. Yes, please. What is it like? Because I'm, I'm a candidate. I'm, I'm not so yeah. far behind you. It's fun. Oh, come on. Well, it's, it's exciting. Uh, well, how do you mean? Well, I don't get scared of shit easily. I just act, you know? What I got to do? Okay, I got to do this. And uh, my father died at 57. His only symptom was a trip to the cemetery. He had one heart symptom. That symptom was not chest pain. It was a ride in a fucking hearse. Because in uh, 1945, they, uh, the, the, the cure for a heart attack was lie down. <laughs> lie down. <laughs> and, and now I am lucky to have this, these medical things that were happening at, at the time uh, that I needed intervention. So uh, I, I and my wife were, were smart enough at the time to, uh, to uh, you know, you go to the you get chest pain. See, men don't want to go to the doctor unless they're pronounced clinically dead. You know, well, you got to tell you got to tell guy. He said, "Listen, I'm not in a coma, honey. I'm okay. You know, three b bullets in the neck, and I'm not bleeding that bad. I'm all right. Give me the remote." Well, actually, what I was trying to get out of you is, yeah. does it hurt a lot? <laughs> oh no, mine was just a tightness. You see, everybody has a signature angina. You know, some people call it angina. The angina that you have, which is the tight chest or the right. or the pressure or the pain in the chest, or the left arm, or the neck, and we've heard all these things in the back, there's another one. Mine was simply a constricted throat. And in, in the case of the big heart attack that I had, I felt that all through my chest. It was a thing where I felt that if I could just stretch, you know how when you, you stretch and you, you arch your, your chest outward, right, right. and you just put your arms up, and, you, and I felt like if I could just stretch long enough, this would go away. So I, I, and this, but, but we found the limo driver. I was at the Dodger game. We found the limo driver. I'm a Mets fan. I hate the Dodgers. Always have. Mets won, though. Mets won that night, but Valenzuela was on the mound, so nobody left. Usually these people leave in the third <laughs> inning. These they leave in the third, and you know, these assholes, these fucking L.A. fans. I got to tell you about these people. You know, I, I once knew a guy, and I, he says, we're going to the Dodger game. I said, oh, who are they playing? He says, I don't know. I don't know who the fuck they were playing. It's, it's, the Dodger game was an event for him. They don't understand baseball out here. They don't understand anything. But they're fine people because they don't, they don't give a shit. 1983, you become a publisher or, or, or a writer. Sometimes a little brain damage can help. Yeah, right. it's, it's a, it's a magazine-sized book. Probably a little bigger than the average kind of Newsweek size thing, but smaller than Life magazine. <laughs> How's that for descriptive language? Uh, anyway, um, it was—it's uh, a beautiful, a beautifully done thing. Nice artwork and good colors and everything. But I didn't want to just sell, send, sell a program. Right. I didn't want to. We, we produce all our own concerts, so we can do what we want. And um, I didn't want to just sell a goddamn program with pictures and shit like that. So I said, let me write some stuff. Let me put some stuff in there. So it came out, I guess it's about 32 pages. But it's an illustrated thing. It's got artwork and it's got photographs of this and that. Not me, not a childhood thing. It's not about my life. It's just weird shit. But it was the beginnings of my wishes to write a little bit for the page. Writing for the eye rather than writing for the ear. Right. And that didn't come to fruition until 14 years later. And when I got to the writing part, it was just a natural outgrowth. It was like another big branch comes off the tree. You know, oh. suddenly you have a real fertile spring and an oh, big old branch shoots out. I just thought finally, I said, I got so much shit in these files. I have 2,000 files now on my computer. I said, I got so much stuff. And this is 97. I, I, I said to myself, I'm never going to get all this stuff done on stage. I got so much stuff here, I'll never get it done on stage. And I guess at some point, it occurred to me, well, maybe it's a book here. And there was a book there. And then four years later, there was another book there. You enjoy that? Oh, it's the best part. 
Oh, it was the writing for the stage. See, I, basically, I'm, I used to call myself a comedian who writes his own material, yeah. which was a very, a very uh, tr uh, accurate description. Comedian who writes his own material. But now, I'm a writer who performs his own material. <laughs> and it's a critical difference. And I write for two things. I write for my stage work, and I write for my books now. They have, I have two delivery systems for my writing. And people say, well, what do you like better? Do you like the stand-up or do you like the uh, books or do you like uh, movies? And I say, listen, movies are, you know, over here. That's like when you're at the carnival and, and it's a, you go get some popcorn. Right. It's an extra thing. But, uh, no, what I do is write and I, it comes easy and I've gotten better at it because I've, I've just... And anything you do over a period of time, you're supposed to get better at it. Right. Whether it's playing the violin or, or throwing tennis balls into a garbage can, you're supposed to improve. If you're writing for... An audience, yeah. you've got to take into consideration reaction time, moving things along. But with a book, yeah. the reader has the opportunity to go back and re ingest something as many times as they want to if it's really profound. Yeah, yeah. well, or even if it's just silly but it's interestingly written. Yeah. You know, there are three, three persons at work here that I, that I figured this out from reading Arthur Kessler's Act of Creation. He was a big uh, right wing dude and everything, but he, huh. he had a good mind and he wrote some interesting things. One of them was the Act of Creation. He talked about the triptych. The triptych was a path possibly followed, and in this case, it's um, it's uh, if you say something, if you're if you're a jester, the first part of the triptych is the jester. Jester says something funny. Okay, now if he says something funny that has some meaning and an idea or two in it, that's you called it profound or something approaching profundity, then he's also a philosopher. He's a jester and a philosopher. And if he says it in sparkling and dazzling language that delights us and marvel, that we marvel at, then he's a poet as well. So you can have more than one thing going on on a stage show. You'd, all you have to do is engage their imaginations. You don't necessarily have to make them laugh all the time. If you have ideas that are interesting and you have a colorful way of describing things or, or making your point, with an occasional boom, 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 occasional punchline, you can and you can keep them where you need them. You can engage them. That's the main job. So the book is just a longer form. You know, you, you're right. You can get to stretch it out a little more. You can say, well, here's an idea I wouldn't do in the stand-up because it would take too much time. Right. I need to, you know, I ought to cut that thing off at eight or ten minutes maybe. Right. But in the book, as you say, I can go on longer. We're talking to George about his new book, When Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops? It was very kind of you to give me an advanced copy. And you you talked earlier about profound things. Mm -hmm. When you're reading material, you get a chance to go back and yeah. soak it up again. Yeah. Can I give you a couple of my favorites? Yeah, sure. I, now, I, I don't know why them. these, they really got This will say more about you than it does about me. Okay. <laughs> well, my favorite lines from the book. But why should God want a kid? Are Joseph talking, say, talking uh, to Mary. Uh, uh, Joseph and Mary right. talking, talking it over. Uh, and the other one was, the future ain't what it used to be. Uh, yeah. I think it's a great line. But I of course, like the that. book's a hell of a lot more than that. May I ask you a favor? Yeah. Because uh, I'm saying this. By the way, we took Jesus out of the uh, Last Supper and dropped me, and you'll recognize the book from Da Vinci. <laughs> our, our artwork was done by Leonardo Da Vinci. How's that shit? Would you mind reading that first thing that comes across? Oh, yeah. This is the page where, where you see quotes in the front of a book before right. you get to the book, before you get to That knocked me on my ass. Before you get to the title page. This is a quote um, among some others that are on the page. The other ones are shorter. Here's what this one is. Of course the people don't want war, but after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it's always a simple matter 
to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy, a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to greater danger. That was said by Hermann Goring at the Nuremberg trial. And for anybody who's uh, too young to know, Hermann Goring was one of your top three Nazi guys there with the, the big A, Adolf. That's frightening, though. But uh, Yeah, I know. It's a big, nice echo. Uh, and then an Irish woman after that says, all tears are the same. Well, this book uh, has a lot to do with euphemisms. Yeah, 60 pages of this book are on euphemisms alone. Aren't they basically a result of political correctness? No. Uh, I mean, you can go back, well, yes, to some extent. To a small extent, that's one element in them. I didn't mean to correct you so sharply like that. Excuse me. No. But um, euphemisms have always been used to make things go down easier for people, whether it's Forget political correctness for the moment. Think of political leaders, political parties, political messages. They always have used euphemism, euphemistic language, so that you, to disguise what they're talking about. So they don't. For instance, we know, you know, pro-life uh, and and uh, pro-choice. These basically what these are is uh, pro-abortion and anti-abortion. And, and they've, 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 they went through this thing where one of them calls itself pro-life, and they knew the left wing didn't want to call themselves pro-death, so, so the left wing had to find something nice, and they found pro-choice. It's the same with wetlands. Those are swamps. Those are swamps. They call them wetlands, because nobody's going to give money to an environmental organization to save the swamp. Save the wetland. Oh, yeah. Rainforest is a jungle. Save the jungle. No fucking money. Save the rainforest. Oh, give me some money. So it's always been that way. Advertising, always been that way. A way to disguise things. It, it goes back to Victorian times. The first example I use... Oh, yeah, dark the, and white meat. Yes, dark meat and white meat were, were euphemisms that were developed during Victorian times because people did not want to say breast. They didn't want to say Margaret... Forget the leg. Give me a breast. <laughs> now it would be, I don't want any dark meat. I'd like some of that white meat, please, Mom. I love their size. Right? Yeah, so, so those things have been around for, uh, euphemistic language has always been there for, it's always used to conceal the truth and to shade the truth and to dress things up a little bit. Like I told you about my mother. My, my, my mother's, my, my aunt was in the, in the room. She had, my aunt had a mole. I said, Ma, Ma, I was a little kid. I said, Ma, look, Lil has a mole on her face. She said, no, 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 that's not a mole. That's a beauty mark. And that was the first time I knew people were full of shit, including your mother. There are other great examples. Pimples are now blemishes. Yes. Uh, toilet paper, of course, is bathroom tissue. I love the one about the uh, complimentary continental breakfast beats the hell out of free donuts. Yes. Are the newspapers free? No, no, they're complimentary. Right. Then we get to preborn. Yeah. And yeah. you, you touch on the fact that the uh, anti-abortion people are uh, now discussing preborn. You said, well, then aren't we all pre-dead? Yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, it's one of the beauties of this book. We're talking about when, when will Jesus bring the pork chops? Uh, a lot of other language things besides the euphemisms, too. But, you know, the nice thing about this is, and forgive me for, sure. but it's a great 
bathroom book. Oh, absolutely. No, because it's a shithouse book. Little, I said that about the first one. Shithouse. Yeah, you pick it up, put it down. Pick <laughs> it up, put it down. Or Uncle John's bathroom reader. Yeah. Did you know I had an Uncle John? Really? And he was the yeah he to be. A, Wait a minute. Is he the Uncle John you write about in here? Not the, really. The not, weirdo. Not not, a, not. I just use my brother and I in our writings. We use a lot of names that are familiar to each each other. Because the Uncle John passage frightened me. Yeah, and that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How to anyway, how to yeah. frighten your kids? You got to read that. But let me, let me touch on some. Subjects, and if you want to elaborate about yeah. some of the things, uh, the control freaks, yeah. things like that have always bothered you. How do you ignore the news? I mean, I, I want I don't, to know. I love the news. Well, no, what I mean, how do you, without screaming and running out the front door, I don't give a you shit. look at what's going on politically right now? I don't give a shit. Who gives a fuck? I don't care how this country winds up. I need to hear up. this. I don't need how this, I don't care how this country winds up. I don't care what happens to America. I don't care what happens to the human race. I got to tell you something. I divorced myself from Homo sapiens, the species I'm a member of, a long time ago, and I divorced myself from this culture. I withdrew to a place just beyond the um, orbit of, say, Pluto, where the Van, not the Van Allen belt, where the uh, Oort cloud is, where comets form. And I see it all from a distance. I am emotionally detached from this adventure. To me, it is a great comic uh, theater that's going on. I say this. When you're born in the world, you're given a ticket to the freak show. If you're born in America, you're given a front row seat. And you have a choice of either fixing the freaks. That's what environmentalists do. ACLU lawyers, people with petitions on the corner. They want to fix the freaks. Uh, others are the freaks, and we watch them. Michael Jackson, Joey Buttafuoco, we got Mike Tyson. These are the freaks. We got our freaks and everything. And then there are those who merely watch the freaks. And some of us write reviews about the freak show. That's what I do. I say, oh, there's a good one. I got to get that down. I got to write that down. It's all amusement to me. I really don't care. Well, what is that quote you say? People that go through life and fail to see the humor. Don't uh, get the point. Yeah. They're missing the whole point of life. Life is nothing but a big joke. This is a cosmic mistake. This is just nature. This isn't a design. People think, oh, God, and he's doing, he, fuck, he's not there. There is no God. If there's, a, if there's, a, if there's an overall intelligence, it, it's, it doesn't give a shit. I know that. There might be an overall intelligence to this order in the universe. I don't know. But if there is, he doesn't have rules and shit, and he doesn't keep score, and he's not watching things, and he doesn't give a fuck. That's all he does is, you know, we're going to spin another thing over there and we'll light up a sun. That'll be a good sun. Let's do some clouds over here, Dan. You know, but none of this shit like, oh, look at that guy. He's, boy, is touching himself. Got to write his, what's his name down? Phil Foster. Put his name. He was a comedian, Phil. He's touching himself in a lewd manner. If he doesn't go to confession, remember to put him in hell, John. Well, you know something? I didn't realize that God had a friend named Dan. Dan. Dan was second in command. Dan is the second in the Holy Trinity. They don't, people don't know that. Now, before we wrap this up, could I, I would like to, if you don't mind, I would like to say some names, and if you could just, could you respond with a description for me? Okay, I'm not good at these, but I'll try. Okay, I'll try. all right. Uh, Letty Bruce. Uh, hero. Uh, you know, I don't like the word hero, but uh, that is the category he would fit in for me. George Bush. Uh, pathological liar. It's, it's a fact. Martha Stewart. An interesting person. Uh, you admire her in a way? I, yeah, I admire uh, strong women. And I admire strong women who get their way uh, in a man's world. I don't admire people who are unkind or cruel to underlings or lesser people in their eyes. Right. There are no lesser people, but they have these gradations in their mind so I don't admire, and I don't know that she was all, she was like that I've heard that see so I'm talking about hearsay but I admire uh, a strong woman uh, Ralph Nader 
Well, I, I don't understand that guy. You know, I really, I just don't understand him. He's weird. What's his motivation? Well, I think he's an altruist. I think he's an idealist and an altruist. You know, I mean, I think he rides the bus, doesn't he, or walks or shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, so he didn't use any of the money to buy a Cadillac. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think he's sincere, altruistic man, but uh, I, I, he's, he's just a bit weird. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Really weird. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be your next president. I mean, I don't know about next, but he he will definitely be the president. And I said that yeah, before he lot, before yeah. he even ran for governor. Right. I looked at him one time. I heard the way he was talking. I heard that he was interested in politics. I said, this man is going to be the president. He's going to be the president. Because yeah. you know why? Because the American people are fucking stupid. If there's one thing, you can say what you want about this country. Land of the free, home of the brave. We got some dumbass motherfuckers floating around this country. They're going to vote for this Bush again, barring barring a, a real good comeback by by Kerry. Uh, they'll pull a, a surprise. They're gonna they're gonna vote for this prick again because they're stupid. They don't. You know what's interesting to me? Working people have embraced the Republican Party. Working people are the people who get fucked the most by rich people. The Republicans are a rich man's party who fuck the working man at every turn. They take away every advantage. They take away every benefit. They take away every... They killed unionism. They kill these benefits and everything. And these fucking people, like sheep, the great American cattle drive, they just fucking march. They tell, where, they, where should we go? Go over that way. Okay, we'll go. Can I get a cell phone? Can I get a jet ski? Yeah, come on. We'll take you. We'll get you anything. We'll get you a laptop. A laptop. Come on, honey. Let's go. He wants us over here. They do whatever you fucking tell them. Jesus Christ. Uh, probably an interesting dude. Um, I'm not 100% convinced of his historical uh, accuracy that he existed, but I pretty much accepted that there was a guy like that. And he was just another one. Listen, you know what they do in this world? If you're If you're walking around telling people to be nice to each other... You get killed. Buddha, Jesus Christ, Lincoln, the Kennedy brothers, Martin Luther King, John Lennon, Medgar Evers. If you're saying, folks, calm down and give each other a fucking hug, they'll shoot you. They'll kill you. They'll fucking chop your head off. They'll nail you to some wood. And you know who killed Jesus? Business and religion and government. If you think about it, if you study those facts in that uh, period, it was the Roman government. It, again, it was it was the, the Jews who, who didn't like him because he they thought he was a heretical Jew, and and I'm sorry, folks, but that's that's what happened. It wasn't fucking Methodists, it wasn't Calvinists, it wasn't Buddha Buddhists. It was Jewish guys because they were a Semitic race, and and um and got, and business interests. The people who didn't want this guy were, were going to share everything. Fuck you! I'm going to share everything. Kill the fuck. Do you think Jesus was gay? I don't know. He might. He might. He probably sure was in touch with his feminine side, as they say these days. <laughs> Very much in touch with his feminine side. But I think he had a nice thing going with Mary Magdalene, and uh, I believe the, uh, the the theory behind the Da Vinci Code, although it is fiction, it's in the fiction section. Uh, I believe that Jesus had descendants. I believe that. I believe that that's what the Holy Grail was always all about, and uh, the Priory of Sion and, and all of those things. Though those are all, uh, I, I think, can be pretty much backed up. Most of that shit is always. Nobody wants to tell everybody the whole truth in this world, and uh, the, the the weirdest truths are the easiest to keep secret because no one believes them when you tell them. Right. Uh, one final person, George Carlin. Describe him. Um, pleasant person to be around 
Never an angry word. You can say what you want about the tone of voice on stage. <laughs> no one who's known me for either 50 years or 55 minutes can ever say, he was always angry or he was angry. I, never, I don't think that anyone's ever seen me angry. That's why I couldn't fight as a kid. I, I thought she had to be mad to fight. I never was mad enough. He, he hit me, fuck him. So what? And what would you put on your uh, tombstone? Ah, I, uh, my epitaph. I had a couple of them in mind. I'm trying to think if I can remember them because they're just sort of fun things to think about. <laughs> uh, one of them was... Uh, and you can't rewrite it either. No. One of them was, he was just here a minute ago. <laughs> and the other one was, and I think I put it in one of my stories about one of my fictional uncles. He wasn't a schmuck. <laughs> but I'll tell you the one, I'll tell you the one that really fits. And this is this is a bit conceit, a bit of conceit here, but All it's right. true. Too hip for the room. <laughs> if the room is this world, too hip for the room. Cool. And that's a, that's a bragger's line, but what the fuck. George Carlin, thanks so much. Thank you, man. I've enjoyed talking about myself. I always learn something. <laughs>